Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 80. Oh my God, number 80, is that possible? It's possible. Here we are. Here we are. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hyang, and I'm going to emphasize those degrees because today we are going to be using them both in terms of critically analyzing important concepts and as a defense against those who will make accusations of us. So... Dr. Uh, Heather Hying? We are not we are not trying to hide behind any false credentials that we both have PhDs in biology. That is right. That's right. Um, so today uh, we are going to talk about uh, some new developments in the lab leak hypothesis. We are going to talk about ivermectin, and we are going to talk about cicadas. And what combine what links all of those? I'm not sure I'm yet sure of that, but uh, but but I'm sure we'll discover it. The glorious umbrella of evolutionary biology, there it which is. lets us talk about pretty much anything we want, so long as it moves or develops or adapts. It's pretty cool. Yeah, indeed. Um, so we do encourage you always at the top of the hour to uh, to subscribe to the channel, go to the Clips channel, subscribe to that, like the videos, share with your friends, consider going to our Patreons and joining us there. Uh, we very much appreciate all the support. Um, this week, um, for the first time in a few weeks, we also have an ad to go to. So should we do that? Um, should we do that next? Yeah, let's pay the rent. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, you want to start? No, I think you should start. You have a prop for one thing. <laughs> well, I'm not. No, I don't. Um, okay. So um, this week, we're going to talk to you a little bit about Public Goods. Uh, Public Goods is a company uh, that is a basically a one-stop shop for many of your needs, uh, a, a little bit like some other giant vendors online that you might uh, imagine, but uh, they make all of their products themselves. And uh, the packaging is simple and elegant, and the products are terrific. Uh, we've tried their avocado oil and their chocolate-covered almonds, and both of those are, are delicious. And also shampoo and counter cleaner, um, and it all seems pretty good. Yeah, the stuff yeah. is high quality, and the packaging does not drive you crazy as you're looking at somebody's idea of how to get your attention in a market, right? These are tasteful, understated they look nice. They don't. Uh, they don't cause a disruption of your thought as you run into them in your life. That's exactly right. They are. They are understated, as you say, and beautiful and functional, and um, you know, really everything. We haven't tried the whole gamut of what they offer, but they sell coffee. They sell pet food. Uh, they sell, like we said, shampoo, um, conditioner. Um, so so many things. Um, they also have a focus on um, organic ingredients when when that's possible. And um, I guess maybe we should just finish off by saying um, that we can bring you an awesome deal from uh, for our listeners. You receive fifteen dollars off of your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That that means obviously that you could uh, find something for fifteen dollars and get it for free. Um, they public goods is so confident that. You will love their products and come back again and again that they are going to give you $15 to spend on your first purchase. So you have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com um, forward slash dark horse or use code dark horse at checkout. Once again, that is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash dark horse to receive $15 off your first order. And we thank them for sponsoring the Dark Horse podcast. All right. Don't pay on the rent. Um, all right, should we start with, do we have announcements that we have not covered? We already did it. Okay, so let's start then with our first topic, which has to do with the lab leak hypothesis. And of course, longtime fans of the Dark Horse podcast will know that we have long discussed the evidence 
for the lab leak hypothesis and compared it to the evidence for what is treated as the null hypothesis that this emerged from nature, possibly through an intermediate species, but ultimately from bats. Now, there have been developments in the last couple of weeks in this story, but they are not scientific developments, interestingly enough. What they are is social developments amongst scientists and those who report on them. So maybe we should put up the letter that emerged this week in Science Magazine. It's on my screen, Zach. And All right. this, um, actually, there's just one paragraph that I think we can share um, to indicate what uh, what is said here, Great. if I may. Uh, it's called Investigate the Origins of COVID-19. It has um, 18 signatories, um, in, including a number of notable people, um, one, will, of, one of whom you will speak, yep. speak to. Um, quote, as scientists with relevant expertise, we agree with the WHO Director General, the United States and 13 other countries, and the European Union that greater clarity about the origins of this pandemic is necessary and feasible to achieve. We must take hypotheses about both natural and laboratory spillovers seriously until we have sufficient data. A proper investigation should be transparent, objective, data-driven, inclusive of broad expertise, subject to independent oversight, and responsibly managed to minimize the impact of conflicts of interest. Public health agencies and research laboratories alike need to open their records to the public. Investigators should document the veracity and provenance of data from which analyses are conducted and conclusions drawn so that analyses are reproducible by independent experts. Yeah, I only wish the letter ended with the single word sentence, obviously, right? <laughs> it is so clear that this is a viable hypothesis, and it should have been investigated seriously from the beginning rather than dismissed as it has been. But what I want to do is put it in context. So first thing to say is that the most important thing about this letter is the third author. The third author is Ralph Barrick, and Ralph Barrick is the... Uh, lead investigator, the PI, in the UNC lab that does uh, gain-of-function research on bat-borne coronaviruses. It's one of the two leading labs in the world for this kind of work, the other one being at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Zhejiang Li Lab. And so to have one of two people at the very forefront of this technology come forward and author a letter that says this is a viable hypothesis and should be fully investigated, is to say, we have been right all along. This was a plausible hypothesis from the beginning, deserving of scientific respect, which is the opposite of what it got. What it got was ridicule. In fact, in the leading journal, um, The Lancet, those the who... The leading medical journal? The leading medical journal, not, The Lancet... I'm I think JAMA's probably, I, I, I don't know that the Lance is the leading right. medical journal. In a leading medical yeah. journal, um, one of two prominent early publications dismissed explicitly as a conspiracy theory, and those who talked about it as conspiracy theorists, those who were interested in looking into the lab leak hypothesis. Um, so to have Ralph Barrett come forward and say, in fact, this is a viable hypothesis and de deserves investigation is a rare triumph where those who uh, were portrayed as cranks at the outskirts, um, who were actually correct and had the evidence with them, have been in some sense vindicated. 
Now, I do think there's... As I've said before, I don't like the word vindicated here because what we all need to be doing all the time, especially when we wear the mantle of science, is looking for all possible explanations and keeping all the possible explanations alive so long as they are not falsified. Well, I agree. But when I say vindicated, Mm -hmm. so this letter, if it is taken seriously and if we don't see funny business downstream of it, which is a possibility, we're already seeing a little bit. But um, if this letter is taken as the ground floor, and now we proceed from it as the letter suggests that we should do, then the point is, okay, now we can begin to compare the evidence fairly. What has been vindicated is those who said the lab leak hypothesis is clearly viable and those who say otherwise are incorrect. Yeah. It's a a vindication for the scientific method. And it's a reveal once again that those people who were saying you cannot consider that were actually acting in an anti-scientific way. Absolutely. And um, if I may, there is an MIT technology technology review article, if you would show this, Zach, um, that came out in the wake of um, that <clears throat> science letter. And I just want to read one, <clears throat> one paragraph from it, from it. The chief scientist for emerging disease at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Shi Zheng, Xi Zheng Li, said in an email that the letter's suspicions were misplaced and would damage the world's ability to respond to pandemics. Quote, it's definitely not acceptable, she said of the group's call to see her lab's records. Who can provide an evidence that does not exist? It's a very interesting statement, mm-hmm. um, but I would point out that one of the really important things about this letter, and you know, it isn't just Ralph Barrick, but the fact that he shows up there is the jaw-dropping fact of it. The fact that it has a lot of top people, including quite a number of people whose specialty is evolutionary, which Mm -hmm. I think is actually also an indication uh, that you and I have been on the right track here, that the evidence that compels people to get uh, out in front here is is largely evolutionary. Um, But the, um, where was I headed? Damn. I don't know. I'll get it back in a second. Okay. Um, So, oh, I know what it is. The fact of Ralph Barrick showing up in mid-May saying, lab leak hypothesis is viable, covers all of the various things that were already on the table. That means it is viable in spite of denials from the Xi Zhengli lab. This is a colleague Mm -hmm. of Xi Zhengli. This is a sometimes collaborator who is saying not only, he, he is implying by showing up here, he is implying that not only is SARS CoV 2, as we find it, consistent at a technical, at a molecular level, with techniques that might have been used to enhance it in the lab, right? Mm-hmm. He is saying that the denials that he has heard are not compelling to him as a leading expert in the field, one of two top labs in a position to know what is and isn't possible, what might or might not have been done. So this is absolutely stunning to have him emerge. And I will say he has said before, he has indicated one cannot rule out lab leak, but he has done it uh, when pressed. Here, he is coming out in front, and that's really important. And although I do think it's very late and he should have done it much earlier, I'm glad to see him there. Also worth noting, he is co-author here. In fact, the second author on this paper uh, paper is Alina Chan, who mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, a great hero of this story because she is inside the academy, has correct expertise to speak about uh, molecular evidence. And she's early career, which means this is dangerous to her at a level that it wouldn't be or would be much less so 
if she were more advanced. So to have them co-authors on this paper is significant. That's really good news. It is really good news. Really good and news. Uh, I think uh, she deserves our gratitude yeah. and congratulations to her on uh, getting this letter published at this level. And that's the other most important thing here is not only do you have um, people of unimpeachable credibility saying that the lab leak hypothesis is viable and deserves investigation, but you have them saying it in the journal Science, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, the journal Science has, yes. So un unlike the Lancet, about which I'm just not as sure, Science and Nature are, are understood to be, you know, whether or not these reputations are still founded, but right. are understood to be the two most important and prestigious science journals in the world. Yes, and important because science exists uh, as the sort of other side of the um, the duality that is science and nature, right? So science, nature, the journal science, the journal and science and the journal nature, <laughs> yeah. right? The journal nature is a British journal that is the other top journal. And you might add cell if we were talking about molecular biology. But for general science, you've got science and nature. And nature was the place where the Christian Anderson uh, letter was published at the beginning uh, of the pandique, uh, pandemic, claiming, I don't know where that so came pandique. from. <laughs> pandique. <laughs> I don't think pandique is a thing, and I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with pandemics. But yeah, anyway, Christian right. Anderson published uh, a letter early on claiming molecular expertise that actually ruled out the possibility yeah. that this was a lab leak, which is obvious nonsense and has been obvious nonsense to everyone who has looked at it. Uh, carefully, um, without a bias. Yeah. Um, but in any case, now... So we, to the degree that there were wagons being circled, it seems that uh, Ralph Barrick, at least, was either not inside the circle or has left the circle. Well, you know, I also... I don't think we're likely to ever know exactly why we won this one. Mm -hmm. But we did win this one. Win in this case means keeping the hypothesis alive until it has actually been assessed. Yep. I am not claiming that we know the answer here, though I think one answer is much more likely than the other, as I've said repeatedly. But Well, there aren't just two hypotheses on the table. It's, there's not a one or the other. There, well, there are multiple possibilities. There are two broad classes. Fair and enough. so the particular details okay. will be interesting either way. But, yeah. but in any case... Um, I don't think we will ever fully know why this went so differently than other cases where uh, whistleblowers and analysts try to um, force recognition of an obvious truth. In general, that's a failure. Yeah. The powers that be when they have uh, a desire to advance one story and hide another are typically very successful at doing it, especially when they have all of the important properties. I mean, think about who it is who is lined up against investigating the lab leak hypothesis. It's all the major tech platforms. Mm -hmm. It's major mainstream newspapers. It's the academy, right? It's, you know, up until now, the major science journals, yep. right? That's an incredible arsenal. And to have, you know, the outsiders, the dark horses, right, um, actually successfully force recognition of something uh, that actually puts all of those forces back on their heels is amazing. Why it happened is a little hard to say. But part of the answer is those who were on the other side were um, very careful, right? Many were highly qualified, and there was a lot of courage. And because of that, I think somebody like Ralph Barrick, he's a smart guy, and I think he is sure to recognize this isn't going away and so anyway, he, you know, I, I, I'm glad he has arrived at, 
at the conclusion he's apparently arrived at. And I'm glad that the journal Nature, I mean, Science, um, was uh, willing to publish this. I will say I have a couple of concerns based on what I've seen so far. Um, one concern is that there is an emphasis in both the letter that Science published and the blog post that the editor who made the decision apparently um, posted about it, which is there's an emphasis on the hazard that the lab leak hypothesis might pose to people of Asian descent. In other words, there's an emphasis on that concern, which I think, frankly, is not impossible that there would be such a thing, but I wonder if this is not an indication of how this was rationalized on the inside, that well, in effect, people who knew better uh, were saying less than they understood because they were attempting to protect uh, colleagues and others who uh, might legitimately fear a backlash. That's, I guess that's possible. I don't. I don't see this as emphasized in the letter. There is, you know, the the very last, very short paragraph of a admittedly short letter um, mentions um, that this should be in no way uh, an excuse to further anti-Asian sentiment, which should be obvious to every reasonable human being. But I don't. I, you know, I don't know that that qualifies as an emphasis, but perhaps. Well, it does in such a short letter. It does when it shows up also in the blog commentary on the letter. Mm. Um, and then there is the fact of what the New York Times, you know. Still, but I, but I guess I would say that, the, you know, the scientists, the 18 scientists who wrote the letter have no control at all over the blog commentary on their research, right? Like they don't, I mean, like we, we have to be very careful about ascribing any intention to the people writing the letter for, you know, the, you know, what goes on downstream, because that's part of, that's part of what we've been talking about, right? For well, over 14 months now is like, you know, to the degree that scientists are trying to get the word out, the media, you know, there's some, there's, there seems to be some concerted effort that may or may not be coordinated um, on the part of media, on the part of tech companies, on the part of, you know, academia, on the part of the WHO, various places um, to, to stop discussion. And so, you know, what happens on a separately written post about a letter, the, the authors of the original letter cannot be held responsible. No, I'm not holding them responsible. But what I'm saying is I think given what in a very short pivot is uh, included and then mentioned sure. again in a commentary on the pivot. I'm wondering if this is not an indication of the internal. Something allowed lots of people who should have known better to say things that didn't make any sense for more than a year. So what yep. is it that they were saying to themselves is a question that is very important if we're to ever face such a thing again and prevent it from happening, right? Um, so what was the internal excuse? That's a good question. And this may or may not be it, or it may or may not be part of it. But the other thing is, well, I mean, that's actually, it's, it's huge if that is, if that is the case. And I, you know, I, I'm not, I wouldn't put the possibility of that very high myself, but, um, what that suggests is that, um, fear of racism has created an anti-scientific movement that has clouded the waters effectively for an entire year during which the world has been in unprecedented territories across every domain. Right. right? <clears throat> and, um, you know, to, to, to which then I will point my finger at, yes, there are some actual racists out there who are assholes and need to stop it, right? Um, but what we have for almost exactly that same time period, and of course starting well be before that, is a focus on how racist everyone is, right? You know, this this talk about how everyone has to admit their own racism, um, no doubt 
encourages the sense that what we really need to do, one of the priorities we need to engage in is making sure that no racism ever happens. And we do need to make sure of that. But if there is a basically a false boogeyman wherein racism is misunderstood to be far more widespread than it actually is, which we have talked about extensively on this podcast, we understand that to be the case, then if that is partially to blame for this misdirect, this 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 just this terrible policy and apparent um, you know scientific backing of bad policy to not engage what was obviously a possible hypothesis from the beginning, um, then that's one more thing on the list of harms that critical race theory and intersectionality and wokeism have brought to the world, frankly. Uh, agreed. Now, the question, though, is how does it fit with respect to a pivot that has another frightening feature to it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So on the one hand, you've got this emphasis on preventing a backlash against Asians, which, of course, makes sense. Right. But how it's much- Certainly, if, if this did come from the WIV, it wasn't the Chinese people. Well, but right? that, that's, that's been my point, which yes. is, in fact, those of us who have been pushing for a responsible investigation of the lab leak have been saying, this isn't a Chinese failure. This is a failure of the international scientific community, right. if that's where this came from. Yes. So we've been careful about that. And mm -hmm. to now have a sort of, well, we need to investigate this. But when it's like, well, actually, we were ahead on that too, right? Not the Chinese. This is not a Chinese failure. Now, it may well, the cover-up is a failure of the Chinese Communist Party and the government of China, but that's not the same thing as the responsibility of Asians. Right, of course not. And you know, as as you began this this commentary by saying, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Barrick Lab in North Carolina are actually the you know by many measures the two most premier labs in the world doing exactly the kind of gain of function research that would have allowed such a virus potentially um, to be created, um, such that um, you know this this kind of research needs to needs to be regardless of whether or not this particular virus emerged from a lab. Uh, that this type of research needs to be reassessed, as it was, as I don't remember the dates, but we've talked about it before. It was halted, I think, something like 2014 under the Obama administration, yeah. um, and reinstated in 2018. I with think with the help of Dr. Fauci. Yes, in, uh, during the Trump administration, but with the help of Dr. Fauci, this type of research was reinstated. Yep, and you know, getting to the bottom of this is central because. Either this thing jumped from nature and the people who were screaming that we needed to do gain-of-function research in order to get ahead of the next pandemic, you know, have been vindicated themselves in a sense, right? I don't think gain-of-function research is sensible. But if this pandemic really leapt from nature without going through a lab, then it tells one story. And if it came from the lab, it tells the opposite story, That's that right. it was exactly the panicked response to the possibility of something jumping from nature that caused us to put ourselves in such a serious situation. So I just want to go to the last thing on this is the New York Times article in which it attempts to contextualize this letter in science. Right. So, Zach, you have that letter. Can you put it? I mean, that uh, article. So the New York Times basically does a report on the uh, the letter that includes uh, Barrick. And unfortunately, I can't read it at that size. But in any case, it does a number of things. And effectively, it reads like an it. So it's uh, Carl Zimmer is one of the authors. It reads as an attempt to reposition the elite so that they don't lose all credibility, having been on the wrong side of this issue for so long with so much at stake. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things it does, can you scroll down a little bit more? So first of all, it 
embarrassingly conflates theory and hypothesis uh, again for no particularly good reason. Uh, okay, well, I can't, I, I'm not gonna be able to find it with Zach scrolling, but what it says in the center of this article is the, the problem in large measure is that those who have been uh, pushing to consider the lab leak hypothesis have been expressing too much certainty and that the problem is people who have been too certain, right? And it puts the... It's our fault. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. our fault, even I mean, though... We haven't been certain. We've we haven't been right. certain at all. In fact, uh, I've been saying... That's a you clever know, pivot right there. It's a clever pivot, right? Mm -hmm. And my point has been... Stop saying theory. It's yep. not a theory. Right. It's a hypothesis, as is the other. We're not certain. Here are the, you know, when mm -hmm. you say it's a hypothesis, you're saying here are the exact rules right. of engagement. Well, what's going to come back at you is that you made a flow chart and you said, you know, here and also on Belmar, something like, I think there's a greater than 95% chance. Well, and that is read um, apparently as certainty. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think the point is those who are making this want to make a general explanation of why they were on the wrong side, right? right? And to portray, you know, basically to straw man anyone who was on the other side, even though I think the strength of those, you know, in the drastic group uh, of Alina Chan, of us, has been that we've been very, very careful to say sure. this isn't certain, but there is an impressive amount of evidence that points in this direction. Um, and it, Well, I mean, it's it's... It's typical now, right? Like there, there is there is no end of attempts to further divide us, and you know, there every kind of argument seems to be rather than scientific an us versus them argument, and the us versus them arguments, of course, they sometimes cloaked in pseudo some sometimes come cloaked in pseudo scientific rhetoric, as if as if by going forward with that, you know, yummy dopamine hit feeling of, I don't like the people who look like that. Yeah. I don't like the people who aren't wearing masks outside. I don't like the people who think that the, that the, this was a lab leak, um, as if that is, has anything to do with a scientific assessment of, of any of these things. That's a, that's a pure, raw, emotional, like amygdala, um, response that is not in any way scientific. Right. And, at some level here, we have um, the hazard that as the elites often do when they are unable to control a story, they are going to do everything in their power to not allow the implications of it to be understood. The implications are something is wrong with our institutional structure, that it got this one so very wrong, and that forces us to ask the question, what else might it be getting wrong? So um, we can leave it at that. But uh, I very much want people to keep an eye on what was actually said and uh, what this pivot is going to do in terms of portraying what was being said. Okay. So um, I'm not sure what to do. I thought we were only going to spend like two minutes on that story and it took half of our time. So maybe we should drop some of what we were going to talk about with regard to ivermectin. Um, I have a lot prepared here and I just don't think we really have time to get through it all. Well, um, so let's just, let's just start and see no, what we, we can do. No, we can't just start. We have, we have to talk about the predicament that we are in on YouTube with respect to ivermectin, which is mentioned specifically in, uh, their community guidelines. YouTube has community guidelines. I, you really want to start before you even say what the thing is? Yeah, okay. I do. Because, um, we are scientists who are about to talk about scientific evidence. That scientific evidence 
may have implications for what we collectively ought to be doing and what you individually might think. We are not going to make any recommendations as to what you should do, and we are not going to say anything conclusive about what the data say because the data are not themselves conclusive. However, it doesn't mean the data don't imply things, and um, you know, I think YouTube ought to think very carefully about whether it wants to confront two people who have the proper credentials, have demonstrated uh, a willingness to be responsible about evaluating heterodox scientific um, uh, processes uh, and in this case are have just been through a circumstance where a hypothesis that they were suggesting needed to be investigated is now understood to be necessary to be investigated uh, you know in science etc so that's the context okay so uh, we have we've mentioned ivermectin before. Ivermectin uh, became somewhat prominent uh, as something that people were talking about early in the pandemic, probably April, May of last year. People were beginning to talk about it. Um, we spent considerable time actually in episode 61, January 2nd of this year of 2021, in which uh, we provided a bit of background as to what it is. Um, it was discovered uh, by a scientist in 1975 in a patch of Japanese soil. Satoshi uh, Omura, Omura yeah. called it astonishingly safe and a wonder drug akin to penicillin and aspirin. And a review in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology concluded after more than 25 years of use, ivermectin continues to provide a high margin of safety. Now, that was obviously, um, you know, that had nothing to do with efficacy against COVID. And in fact, the quote doesn't have anything to say about efficacy, um, but but safety. So um, this is this is a drug that has been widespread uh, in use for various, uh, various pathogens um, in both human and non-human populations um, and veterinary applications for for decades at this point, almost, you know, coming up on or actually maybe at this point, 50 years. Um, no, not quite. I think it's... Over yeah, 40. Over 40 years. Um, and there have been a few people sounding the gong during the pandemic about whether or not ivermectin might be effective. We know it to be safe uh, in humans from all of these studies that have been done already because it's such a widespread a drug in such widespread use, whether it might not be effective um, either as treatment or as prophylaxis um, against SARS-CoV-2. Prophylaxis, I, I'm never sure if people know exactly what that means. They are only associating the word with condoms. So prophylaxis just means a preventative. So for instance, we don't have a malaria vaccine yet. So when you travel to malarial areas, you have to take prophylaxis of one sort or the other, depending on what species of malaria is there, if you've got Vivax or Plasmodium. And Anyway, so right. there are a couple uh, things I want to add to that. Yep. First of all, um, Satoshi Omura mm -hmm. uh, shared the Nobel Prize with William Campbell for the discovery of, uh, of this drug. And it has been in use um, preventing river blindness and treating river blindness for all of these decades. Now, when we say it is safe, what we are saying is it is comparatively safe. All drugs have downsides. Yes. This one has some downsides. In terms of what has been observed, the downsides are short-lived in general and minor and largely a result of the death of the parasites that this is used to fight. In other mm -hmm. words, if you are infected with a worm, a parasitic worm, and then that worm dies, your immune system actually has to take it apart at a molecular level, which may cause you to itch and other things, but that is part and parcel of being cured of the disease. So mm -hmm. all drugs have downsides. The downsides on this one are very, very low. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
When we first talked at some length about ivermectin back in early January of this year, there were at that moment only three studies on ivermectin proceeding in the U.S., none of them funded by NIH or any other U.S. agency, which is, um, which is at the very least negligent. Um, when, <clears throat> when I go to the site now, um, <clears throat> the clinical trials um, .gov, um, we find that there are seven, two of which um, are not yet recruiting. So there are a few more than there were um, before, but still really not that many, especially when you compare that to, um, Zach, please, may I see my notes? Thank you. Um, especially when you compare that to what we, what we can now see in the published literature, what is going on in the rest of the world. There are so many studies, um, but without the full force of the American government. Um, behind them. That is to say that they, you know, without NIH backing, without, you know, without, without the incredible um, scientific establishment that the U.S. can bring to bear on, on problems, why is the U.S. government not, um, not, uh, I'm sorry, you're trying to tell me something and I'm not sure what it is because I can't read your writing. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so there is a review, um, Carr et al., 2021. Oh, no, actually, first, uh, we wanted to say that uh, a new paper by Saha et al., Zach, if you will, um, published this year, submitted this year, in fact, and published this year, March 2021, the binding mechanism of ivermectin and levosalbutamol with spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so that's all we need to show of that. Um, we're not going to go into depth in any of these papers, but basically what this paper finds is the mechanism of action by which ivermectin might work um, against SARS-CoV-2, which is by binding to the spike protein, which um, you know sure, turns out to be you know so prevalent in so many stories around SARS-CoV-2 is the spike protein. Yeah, because the spike protein is essential to getting into the cells in order to do the bidding of the virus. Blocking the cell protein is an obvious go-to move, which is why the vaccines look the way they do. The distinction here, though, I would point out, is that ivermectin's mode of action is loosely analogous with innate immunity. In other words, ivermectin was not constructed in order to target the spike protein of SARS. It generally has an effect that gets in between the spike protein and the cells that it might invade, preventing the, the uh, mode of action, yeah. which implies that the chances of SARS-CoV-2 evolving around it are much reduced, right? Because this is not a specific thing that can be undone by slight changes. It's a generalized activity, right? So you've got a comparatively safe drug. We've got a known mechanism of action, which frankly, mm -hmm. you don't even need, but there is one that's fascinating, blocks the activity of the spike protein, and it appears to do so in a way that is unlikely to uh, be subject to uh, small evolutionary changes disrupting it. And I guess that's also a fit for how many applications we already know that are, you know, FDA approved for ivermectin. There's so many different pathogens um, that ivermectin seems to be effective against um, that it working as a, as a is kind of a broad spectrum um, I don't even, it's, you know, antiviral in this case, but antipathogen. Antipathogen. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't think broad spectrum antipathogen is a term of it's art. It's a weird category. Right. Um, but it, you know, it seems to be that. Um, so there's a, also a review. This is um, Carr et al. Don't show my screen yet, Zach. Um, 
Ivermectin as a potential drug for treatment of COVID-19, an in-sync review with clinical and computational attributes. This is also published um, the 3rd of January this year. Uh, and uh, a couple of, you know, they basically are just, these, these guys are reviewing other people's research. And most of the studies are small. You know, the N is small in almost all of these studies because there are no giant clinical trials um, that, that I have seen yet. They say another study by Alam et al. reported that ivermectin and doxycycline's combination is very efficacious in SARS-CoV-2 clearance in patients with mild to moderate disease. Later, they say, um, according to the results of another paper, We'll link to all of these. Ivermectin combined with doxycycline was safe and efficacious in early viral clearance in patients um, and took less time than uh, in this other paper. They were comparing it to hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin combination for viral clearance. Uh, and actually, you can, uh, Zach, just show, nope, not yet. Uh, where is it? And, oh, here it is. So they just, uh, I'm not going to walk through this whole table, but they they run through the summary of um, the papers that were available to them that they reviewed. And in all of, all of the cases um, where they, there was a, 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 a ivermectin being compared to some other treatment, ivermectin was doing as well, but usually much better. Uh, so, um, so let me pause yeah. us there. So you will see frequently in the discussion of why we mustn't think about, talk about ivermectin, you will see the claim that uh, there are no large-scale studies right. that would give us the evidence. What there is, is meta-analysis that actually just looks at is. many studies, as mm -hmm. you've just described. And that is, in fact, a better kind of evidence, right? So it would be nice if we had a really large, long-standing study. But a meta-analysis that gives you a consistent indication is the equivalent or more of a large study. A large study can be biased. A meta-analysis, the biases of various different uh, researchers will tend to be canceled by the fact that they won't be consistent between these things. The other thing to say is large studies are great because they reveal very small uh, effects. When you have a very large effect, you do not require a very large study to see it. And so the uh, the compilation of all of these things is very strongly suggestive that ivermectin does work. And uh, what we know about it from the context in which it has been used as an antiparasitic uh, suggests it's very safe, which then we would have to put in to juxtapose it to the alternatives here. Well, I, I'm not sure I totally agree with all of that. Um, I think, I, you know, I would point my finger at NIH and some of the, you know, the, the governmental agencies within the U.S. who are normally the ones who would help make happen, who would help facilitate the large-scale studies. You know, it's exactly these organizations who are in part, and their representatives who are saying, well, we can't assess this because there are no large-scale studies, exactly while um, <clears throat> I think we are seeing evidence that they may be helping make sure that there are no large-scale studies. So that, you know, that's, that's a problem oh. right there. Um, and then we do also have some evidence from Africa of different kind. You know, it's not a large, it's not a large-scale clinical study, um, but basically a going back in afterwards and looking at results, having been, having done a, um, without imagining that's what they were doing, they effectively pulled an experiment on several populations within Africa. But before we go there, um, with regard to this Cower et al. review, um, I did want to just spend a moment talking about the fact that many of the studies that they were reviewing were combining um, 
ivermectin with doxy, with doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. And um, sometimes the the so-called control group, the other group was hydroxychloroquine uh, with uh, azithromycin, Zithromax, which is another um, antibiotic, and um, this this struck me as surprising. I, you know, I'm not I'm not sure why um, we are expecting these these drugs that are understood to be antibacterials um, to be effective against a virus. And this seems to go against a um, you know one of the few things uh, that we learn in sort of basic biology about um, about drug efficacy and, you know, how, you know, doctors should never be prescribing antibiotics when what you've got is a virus, you know, when what you've got is a cold, right? Um, so there's this, again, just like we're in complex system space and somehow ivermectin in combination with doxy, with doxycycline might actually be even more effective. I'm, I, you know, I'm worried about widespread use of doxycycline and, you know, it's also effective as an antimalarial actually. Um, and, but it is uh, it has known effects uh, with regard to sun exposure, and so you know when you're on doxycycline, you're really not supposed to be spending time in the sun because you're much more prone to burning. And of course, we also know that spending time in the sun is good for you with regard to um, defending yourself, uh, defending your body, defending itself against SARS-CoV-2. So there there are a lot of things to juggle here. So let's let's sort that a little bit. Okay, one. It is interesting that in the case of things that are not bacteriological or fungal, that we see increasingly that antibiotics, which we have been told are should be limited to the use uh, against um, uh, fungi and bacteria, turn out to be useful. So this is a welcome to complex systems phenomenon. Hey, you're getting yeah. surprised by something that you didn't uh, think to predict. B, that's not to say that it makes any sense at all for a doctor to prescribe an antibiotic when you do come in with a virus, who's to say what affects what. And C, we also learned back, you know, decades ago about how safe these antibiotics tended to be, and that turns out to be wrong, right? These things have uh, downsides because, of course, welcome to complex systems. So, you know, what landscape are we in? Pretty hard to know. Whether the NIH is integral to why the big studies don't exist, maybe. But I think the point is, you somehow, at the root of all of this, is some weird license with no limit to a double standard, right? So if some if the powers that be decide they don't like something like ivermectin, they can establish any standard up to a ridiculous right. degree that nothing can overcome, right? When it comes to the thing that they favor, there's almost no standard at all, right? There's no level of danger that could be sufficient to call it into question. And so we don't know what that looks like on the inside, but what you can see is the hallmark of it is a double standard that is glaring if you know how to analyze what's being said. Absolutely. Uh, so when we began to really be thinking a lot about ivermectin again a week ago or so, I said to you, I wonder if given how widespread and gi given how many decades ivermectin has been used um, to to decrease uh, you know, pathogens uh, in Africa in particular, if that may not be playing a role in why, we, why many African nations seem to be doing many, much better than you might otherwise expect. Um, and that, you know, there are other reasons um, to, there, there are other possibilities, of course. Um, but we actually, we found two papers this week, and uh, I imagine there might be more, but we found two papers, uh, one of which is uh, this one, Zachary. Uh, this is Helwig and Maya, uh, titled 
it published in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents, titled The COVID-19 Prophylaxis, question mark, Lower Incidence Associated with Prophylactic Administration of Ivermectin. So in that paper, they have... Um, Why would it be useful if I had? I can't. I can't do it. Um, so their methods. Um, the methods in this paper are: we collected data from countries that routinely deploy prophylactic chemotherapy, that's PCT, using countries that. Um, I'm going to start again. Their methods are as follows, and I'm quoting them. We collected data from countries that routinely deploy prophylactic chemotherapy using various drugs, including ivermectin, based on the various. Varying MDA designs, we group these countries into two different categories, those that include ivermectin in their prophylactic chemotherapy and those that do not. We then proceeded to compare COVID-19 proliferation between these two groups and further contrasted them against a third group of countries that do not use prophylactic chemotherapy at all. So they've got three groups they're comparing, um, groups that simply use prophylactic chemotherapy because of all of the other things that are in, you know, that are endemic in these countries. Like that, river blindness. Like river blindness. And of those countries in Africa that use prophylactic chemotherapy, there, there are two sets, one of which has ivermectin in the prophylaxis and one of which doesn't. And then there are countries that don't use prophylactic um, chemotherapy at all. And here, uh, Zach, is... Figure three from this paper, which shows, for those just listening on the y-axis, we have incidents, cases per 100,000 um, people, and the three categories. On the left, we have prophylactic chemotherapy that includes ivermectin, a short squat uh, image uh, because there are a lot of countries and they're, they have very low incidence rates. In the middle, we have countries that use um, prophylactic chemotherapy, but don't, that, those don't include ivermectin. And then we have a lot of, and there aren't very many countries in that group. Most of the countries in Africa that use prophylactic chemotherapy include ivermectin in their uh, chemotherapy treatment. And then we have a number of countries in Africa on the right um, that use no prophylactic chemotherapy at all. And so the authors go to great lengths to say, look, we know that the sample sizes are way different and, um, and, and that this is coming in after the fact and all of this, but look at these numbers. Uh, the countries that were already deploying ivermectin at the population level have far lower case case counts, case rates, um, than the countries uh, that are either deploying chemotherapy, um, again, chemotherapy meaning something chemical different. Therapy. Chemical therapy, yeah, um, without ivermectin or none at all, right? So that's, that is a very interesting piece of data. Um, Thank you, Zach. So I'll just say this is a, this is effectively a natural experiment, right? So things vary between islands. This is countries vary in what they've been doing, and we can now look at the difference between those countries, and it is a profound difference, which we can't say for certain comes from this. But and here's just the other study that does very much the same thing. Okay, this is um, Guerrero et al. published again this year in um, this is a Colombian medical journal. COVID-19, the Ivermectin African Enigma, it is called. <clears throat> so I'm going to take my screen back, please. Thank you. Um, so that um, we can show you um, this. This is the paper just in PDF format. They, um, <clears throat> under their remarks, they have three. What do these results contribute? 
our data suggests that a mass public health preventative campaign against COVID-19 may have taken place inadvertently in some African countries with massive community ivermectin use. Additional studies are needed to confirm it. So that they, they come to really the same conclusion as that first study, but there's two of them not working together who, who looked at very similar data, probably basically the same data, and came up with the same answer. So our viewers ought to be considering this question. In light of conspicuous patterns like that, and in light of the fact that the drug in question has a very long, extreme safety record, why wouldn't you test it? right? Why wouldn't you do that large-scale study? Why wouldn't you deploy it somewhere to see whether it had the effect and then discover whether or not this was, uh, you know, I mean, and it, I, I don't think we've said this time, but this appears to be uh, effective in controlling COVID from people who've already contracted it and preventing contraction, right? Yep. In so treatment and prophylaxis. Treatment and prophylaxis. If you imagine the thing blocks the spike protein, that's integral to how it gets between people. It's also integral to how it gets between cells, right? Mm -hmm. So this is highly effective in both cases, it would appear. So what on earth is the excuse for not testing this? Well, unfortunately, I think I may have at least part of an answer. Um, but, but one more thing before we go to that. So if you can pose that question once more in just a minute, um, let us just point out, this is a paper from pre-COVID. Remember those days? I do. Yeah, I do Fondly. too. Um, what's called a, an observational study um, published in 2019 in the British Journal of Dermatology, it looks like, I think that's what that's going to stand for, called Ivermectin Safety in Infants and Children Under 15 Kilograms Treated for Scabies, a Multicentric Observational Study. So this has nothing to do with COVID at all. This is simply, um, and it's nothing to do with efficacy, actually, even. Like, I, I think from, from what I can infer from this paper, uh, efficacy in ivermectin against scabies had already been established, but now they were looking at, look, can we actually give it to really tiny kids? Can we give it to infants and kids under 15 kilograms, which is like 13 pounds, uh, 13, about 33 pounds? Uh, and what they find um, is that, um, is is yes. They, they've, and, you know, obviously there are always risks, but that this is a remarkably... A, a remarkably safe drug uh, for something that has such broad scale efficacy. And uh, remarkably safe in this case means short term and as far as we can tell, long term because it's been in use so long. Exactly. Okay. So um, what was the question you just asked? The question is, given all of the evidence, circumstantial inadvertent experiment as it may be from all of the evidence that this appears to have a mechanism for action and appears efficacious in preventing both the spread between people and the spread within a person, why on earth would you not run a very large study that would tell you for sure how good this was and how best to use it? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And uh, wouldn't it wouldn't it be a legitimate word to use that it would be criminal if you didn't, if you knew that it would be a good idea to do so? Well, as it turns out, if ivermectin were an effective treatment, the vaccines never would have gotten emergency use authorization in the U.S. And um, we know that um, because even though even my computer would like me not to be talking about this. Um, <clears throat> here is, and we'll link, we'll link to uh, the URL for this, but here, uh, here is 
just a downloaded uh, version of the document from the FDA, Emergency Use Authorization of Medical Products and Related Authorities, Guidance for Industry and Other, sta and other Stakeholders. So um, I'm going to scroll down. This is from January 2017, expires in 2022. This is still the, um, the guiding document. And you go down, not very far, although it may seem like it's going fairly far, um, and find emergency use authorizations. Where'd it go? Um, I swear it's here. Um, here we go. Criteria for issuance under uh, emergency use authorization, medical products, one criteria for issuance. Uh, there uh, are a few. It needs to be a serious or life-threatening disease or condition. There needs to be evidence of effectiveness. There needs to be a risk-benefit analysis. And D, there need to be no alternatives. I quote, for the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization, there must be no adequate, approved, and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition. A potential alternative product may be considered unavailable if there are insufficient supplies for the approved alternative to fully meet the emergency need. That is not a problem for ivermectin. By not doing the relevant large-scale clinical studies on ivermectin, and thus it not being approved by the FDA for use in COVID, uh, that opens the door for EUAs, for emergency use authorization, for the vaccines um, that we are now all living with and among. This is stunning. If that is the explanation, then we are talking about Something for which I'm not even sure we have a proper term because... Anchor-inducing? <laughs> uh, it is that, mm. but let's just say um, this would have elements of malpractice. This would be gross negligence. I think it verges on depraved indifference, given that we're talking about a life or death situation for vulnerable people who get this disease, in addition to effectively the crippling of the world economy and who knows how much harm. We'll never be able to measure all the harm that came from this pandemic and the way it has forced us to alter our behavior, all the businesses that have closed, all the people who've been rendered homeless, who's to say what all of the costs actually are? And if there if is, this a, is effective, if this is effective and, you know, we can't say that it is, but we can say, look, evidence works a certain way. This certainly seems like a whole lot of evidence that points in a direction. And if it were just simply good at treating people with COVID, that would be immense. The fact that it appears comparable in preventing people from contracting the disease to- At a prophylactic dose. At a prophylactic dose mm -hmm. to uh, vaccines, that we happen to have a long-standing administration of this thing to people. And in parts of the world where there are things like river blindness, people do take this regularly. In fact, I think it is referred to as Sunday Sunday because people remember <laughs> to take it uh, on a as a weekly or bi-weekly basis. So the point is we have a lot of information on how people tolerate this drug. So if it was a great drug for this, that would be immensely good news for planet Earth. What's more, this stuff is readily makeable, right? You can make this stuff all over the world. And in fact, it is made too readily makeable, probably. Too readily makeable. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, it's been around for a very long time and it's no longer under patent. No longer under patent. So anybody can make it and mm -hmm. not violate. Uh, 
And yet, and yet, check out. I mean, you actually sent me this, so you know this. But check out Merck's response. Uh, so Merck does Merck does not like ivermectin at all. Um, wait, wait, wait. Let, I want to point out the the history here. So well, uh, Satoshi okay. Omura yep. discovers this compound. He sends it to William Campbell, who I think is a friend of his, who is a Merck scientist, okay. right? Ivermectin is the drug that emerges. It gets a Nobel Prize, right? So it, th those two or yes. you know, the drug uh, those doesn't two, get a Nobel those, Prize? Well, those two got a Nobel Prize for their discovery of that drug, and they shared that Nobel Prize with a woman who was being heralded for discoveries in fighting malaria, I believe. But mm. in any case, a Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of the compound that became ivermectin, which is a Merck drug. Okay. What does Merck say? Merck says, um, here, actually, maybe, let's see if I can show the relevant. Here we go. Okay, so this... Um, this is a quote from an article that I will link to. Merck's patent on ivermectin expired in 1996, and they produced less than 5% of the global supply. In 2020, they were asked to assist in Nigerian and Japanese trials, but declined both. In 2021, Merck released a statement claiming that ivermectin was not an effective treatment against COVID-19 and bizarrely claimed, quote, a concerning lack of safety data in the majority of studies of a drug they donated to be distributed in mass rollouts by primary care workers and mass campaigns to millions of developing countries. The media reported the Merck statement as a blinding truth without looking at the conflict of interest when days later, Merck received $356 million from the U.S. government to develop an investigational therapeutic. The WHO even quoted Merck as evidence that it didn't work in their recommendation against the use of ivermectin. It's a dangerous world when corporate marketing determines public health policy. Global vaccine rollout to everyone is the policy. So is there a polite way of saying what the fuck is going on? Right? Yeah. Like, we're talking about a situation in which life and limb is on the line at a scale that's almost impossible to comprehend. We're talking about millions of dead worldwide. Mm -hmm. This is an immense number of people who stand to benefit, not to mention all of the suffering that comes to people who have lost a family member, right? That is an immense, immense amount of harm. Before you ever get to the massive disruption of planet Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And it appears that there's something just on the shelf, cheap to make, safe to distribute, long longitudinal safety data that comes from the fact that millions of people take this thing. In fact, I believe 4 billion doses of this thing have been administered already on planet Earth. It was plenty safe for Merck to distribute widely when it was still under patent, but now they're claiming the safety record is insufficient. Right. Well, that doesn't even make sense. That no, sentence is in, before you get to the end of the sentence, you've already contradicted yourself somehow. Right. So yeah. this is just something ungodly is going on. And the idea that not only does it show up in weird contortions of Merck and the who, but it shows up in the YouTube community guidelines, thou shalt not, right? What is going on? This yeah. is insane. <clears throat> what, what indeed? What indeed? Um, so I will also post the this Merck statement on ivermectin use, the whole thing um, on our show notes. I, I, it's not, it's not, easy reading. It's not, it's not fun, but, um, I mean, I guess we've already talked about this, but media is all crickets on this, on ivermectin, you know, when they aren't actually saying that there's no, there's no possibility of efficacy at all. So we mentioned, I believe in episode 61, the AP having fact-checked 
uh, ivermectin. And um, they concluded without basis that, quote, there's no evidence that ivermectin has been proven a safe or effective treatment against COVID-19. And indeed, that same fact-checking article um, has about safety. Actually, I think I think I can get there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this this article, no evidence ivermectin is a miracle drug against COVID nineteen. Wait, wait, I have to stop you right there. Yeah. The, this the more you read this article, well, the, I, I have a quote from the it. Crazier it is, but I just even want to point out the title: no evidence that ivermectin is a miracle drug. Right. right? When you're hyperbolic in the second part of the sentence, the fact that you yeah. don't have any evidence that this thing is beyond. Yep. Uh, you know, this is fact checking 2021. This is fact checking. Yeah. This is this is hyperbole garbage is what this is. Absolutely. Um, so the quote says, I will not be able to find it by scrolling down. I'm just going to read it here. Uh, in March, an Arizona couple attempted to self-medicate and took chloroquine phosphate, an additive used to clean fish tanks that is also an ingredient in hydroxychloroquine. The woman became gravely ill and the man died. What, pray tell, does that have to do with ivermectin? That is in a fact-checking off article by the Associated Press, right. which is then going to be referred to by other media so, in an article supposedly about ivermectin and its failure to be a miracle drug. Right. Uh, ivermectin- because a couple of yahoos um, <laughs> drank fish cleaner, like, uh, which is not in any way related to ivermectin. Like that's 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 proof. a fact check. That's no, a fact it's check. It's like so many steps removed, right? The it's the fact check is about ivermectin. Ivermectin exists in context of another drug that people think might work, and then some people bought some stuff that they thought was the the second drug, and that somehow implies the first drug isn't any good. Yeah, it's not even. I mean, we've talked about this before. It's not even guilt by association for drugs. It's like guilt by association for drugs, and I I don't even know what. And actually, I think when we talked about this before, it was two episodes ago, episode 78, um, I quoted from um, Washington Post article on April 8th, and I'm just going to read this quote again. Again, I'll put the link again in the show notes. Um, with regard to ivermectin, quote, it's like the new hydroxychloroquine, said Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Georgetown University's Center for Glo Global Health Science and Security, referring to the malaria drug published, pushed by President Donald Trump that proved ineffective against COVID-19. Quote, it would be great if ivermectin did work. It's been around for years and is cheap. But to my knowledge, there is no data that suggests it's good for COVID-19. And of course, that's just thinly veiled code for this thing smells like Trump. And if it smells like Trump, it must be bad. So good people not just can, but indeed should, must safely ignore this thing. And it's probably better if you mock and deride anyone who takes this seriously as well. Yeah. Right? Like, just like, just sort of wave your arm in the general direction of like an orange halo over there and imagine it's Trump and put anything you don't like next to it. And boom, your problem is gone. Right. But the problem is that this stuff carries like the weight of law, right? If we yeah. can't talk about it on YouTube, right. right? Because it violates the WHO guidelines, but of course the WHO is out of control for reasons that we can speculate on, but have no way of knowing. And, you know, that fact-checking article, I remember there's also a sentence in the middle of it that actually says what the thing means, like the actual fact. Mm -hmm. And the critique, like the, the actual critique is something like, the studies that suggest that ivermectin is effective are not the gold standard, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. Mm -hmm. And the point is, well, that's not a 
argument at all. Yes, it is an argument that you might want, a, you know, a study that didn't have the defects of the ones that exist, but that's hardly the same thing as there's no evidence for it. There is evidence for it, even right. if every effort has been made to leave the impression that it hasn't, so that people who have the power to shut up those who would talk about the evidence will do that, mm -hmm. right? And in whose interest might they be doing that? It's hard to come up with another candidate, right? Right? Then the people who stand to make a profit from other treatments, whether it's remdesivir or vaccines. And the really appalling thing here is if the world is to get over COVID-19, having botched the response to this point, right? Our best hope is some kind of composite herd immunity where there are not enough people susceptible yes. to this disease for the disease to continue to propagate. And then it goes extinct over time. How are you going to get there? Well, who's not susceptible? People who've had COVID have at least some immunity. For, some, for had, some time. Right? And it may be a lot of immunity, and it may be for a very long time. We can say the same thing about people who've had the vaccine. It looks to be a very comparable, you know, if, we're, if, if the vaccines are going to require annual boosters, then the amount of time that uh, your naturally achieved immunity from exposure to actual SARS-CoV-2 and the amount of immunity that you receive, that you get from being vaccinated might well be comparable and are appear really unfortunately not to be permanent. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you've got those two categories, yeah. right? And then you might have another category. If ivermectin works mm -hmm. and you administer it widely, which you could do very, very quickly because, of course, it can be produced by anybody and is already being produced around the world mm -hmm. for other reasons, right? You ratchet up that uh, campaign. You give it to people. That provides a third group that would be very uh, – would have a high degree of immunity to contracting the disease. If you can get that composite and, and do we know, group – Have you run into anything – sorry to interrupt, but um, have you run into anything – I just have not seen this and I, I think the question hasn't been asked – but whether or not if you are on a prophylactic dose of ivermectin, um, it would do anything to reduce uh, – if you are exposed to SARS-CoV-2, you are better able to – the evidence suggests that you are better able to defend yourself against it, but um, are you able to spread it yourself? Do you do you remain contagious yourself? You know, this is a big issue with the vaccines, right? There seem, you know, because you can be asymptomatic with a vaccine, you might be more likely to spread it um, because you might be being less careful because you think you're immune to it. Um, and I don't know, I have not seen any evidence of this with regard to ivermectin. Well, um, I, I would point people to, um, to Pierre Corey's group. Yep. They have a lot of information on the web. I recall there's a very interesting study, I believe it was Argentina, in which a lot of frontline workers, it was like 1,200 frontline workers were part of a, a study. 800 of them got ivermectin, 400 of them didn't, not a single one in the 800 contracted the disease and quite a number did in the other group. Anyway, yeah, more than 50% did in the in the other group. Um, but what that doesn't say is if any of those 800 who were treated with ivermectin prophylactically um, still were able to, you know, if they were exposed, spread the disease to anyone else. Right. So I would, I, I would like to know that. I would like to know it too. Yeah. But let's just say if loosely speaking, based mm -hmm. on what we've seen, if the numbers are anything like they appear to be, yep. then the composite of people who have a prophylactic uh, relationship with ivermectin, people who've had COVID and therefore have immunity for some time, most of them, mm -hmm. people who've had the vaccine and therefore have immunity for some time, most of them, um, that composite group could well be 
quickly above the number that creates herd immunity where COVID starts becoming less common because it can't find a willing victim. Yeah. So what would it take if you knew that that was the case to block that effort? Wouldn't it be much more likely to get to 80% of any given population compliant with one of those three things, one of those three categories, right? rather than saying there's one and only one road uh, to being a good person in this game, in this era. Um, You know, the the vaccines uh, seem to be effective. They simply cannot have the safety record that ivermectin does. Ivermectin, uh, without giant scale clinical studies, seems to be effective and does have decades long safety record. It does. And, you know, I I feel weird about this because, you know, we are oddly at the epicenter for various reasons. I think primarily because uh, we are in a position to have fears that are backed by uh, scientific training, right? Our concerns about the vaccines are founded the hazard of vaccines for which we have no long-term data that interact with the immune system in a novel way, right? Those hazards are real. Whatever the long-term harms actually turn out to be, the fact that we don't know what they are at this point is a legitimate reason for us not to want to be vaccinated, right? In light of that, in light of the fact that anybody who follows that same trail of logic might reasonably end up in that same category, not because they're anti-vaccine, as we have said many times, we're as vaccinated as anyone. We are highly pro-vaccine. In this case, we are concerned about we don't what we don't know about these vaccines, mm-hmm. and that is not a wild guess. That is on the basis of our best understanding and the huge unknowns that exist surrounding this technology. So why wouldn't you want to investigate whether or not people who are concerned about the hazard of these vaccines for themselves and their families might have an alternative that is approximately as effective at fending off COVID? right? If your real interest in wagging your finger at everybody about masks and vaccines is to get us to a position where COVID can't spread anymore, then shouldn't you want to provide the maximum diversity of useful technologies that people can deploy so that the sum total of us really are immune to this disease at a level that it then goes extinct and we can stop living this way? I do. I mean, what reasonable person wouldn't? Yeah. What reasonable person wouldn't if they were actually if they actually cared about the things they say they care about, if they're actually interested in um, the health of humanity and the societies that we live in. Um, I guess the other thing, just to connect two of the dots here um, that maybe should be obvious, uh, is we potentially have a problem with schools as as some of the new variants um, seem to be more willing to infect children. And uh, I I don't know if it was the FDA or whoever just approved uh, one, the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds. But there's a lot of people who are adults and are willing to take uh, one of the mRNA vaccines and are not willing to let their kids anywhere near it. Um, And um, certainly we want to protect our children. from from them as well, because the risks are higher for younger people for two broad reasons. They are still developing, and so there are often um, often drugs that are safe in adults are not safe for children. This is part of why you don't drink when you're pregnant. You don't give alcohol to three-year-olds, right? Everyone knows this. And of course, more of their life is ahead of them yet. So they have more time to experience any long-term effects that might result. So for those two reasons alone, you want to be much more cautious about giving things to children that are not vetted by long-term uh, research. Uh, but ivermectin 
appears to be have a have a very long-term safety record even in very tiny children. We still don't have the giant clinical trials with regard to efficacy against COVID, but maybe especially given the problem in schools and especially given that variants may be now figuring out how to leap into kids because more and more of the adult population is vaccinated and there's less reservoir in the adult population maybe ivermectin um, to you know 18 year olds and under would be a legitimate way to start rolling this out and you know maybe if you really have to play your damn games you can do it in such a way that you know the the vaccines are only for over 18 year olds and the kids are for the ivermectin is for younger people, but you know, really why, why do you need to play those games with all of our lives? Like that, that's, that's the big question. Yeah, that is the big question. And you know, the contrast to me between getting us little folks to go after each other over moral failings for being yeah. frightened of novel vaccines and things while the, the big people are apparently playing business as usual with, yes. you know, not only the lives of strangers, but um, the normal business of planet Earth, right? The fact is, ivermectin isn't new. We could have been investigating this all along. If there needed to be a campaign to ratchet up its production, it could be underway. And if it turns out that it's disappointing, I mean, frankly, if it was half as good as it appears to be, it would be tremendous. Mm -hmm. So... You know, if it's as good as it appears to be, then how much did we lose dragging our heels and on whose behalf? And how many people participated in shutting down this discussion and why? Right? That it just it's it's mind-boggling. To me, it really looks like crime of the century stuff. And you know, hopefully somebody and the century is still young, but it seems like a good contender. It does seem like uh, it's in the early lead, <laughs> right? Um, and you know. It, it ought to, among other things, the fact of, uh, you know, the long, slow road to the acknowledgement that lab leak is a viable answer to where this thing came from. And therefore, we have to wonder about gain of function research. We should also then be wondering about the people who pushed it, you know, mm -hmm. Fauci, Peter Daszak, right? All of the things that got that in motion, we should now be questioning all of the newspapers that signed up for the standard line. Frankly, the This Week in Virology podcast. This Week they, in they, Virology. They were very instrumental in um, making sure that no one who took lab leaks seriously was taken seriously early on. Right. And, you know, we've got entire fields of biology, the fields that we most need, which are apparently compromised by some political willingness to shut down discussions they find inconvenient or threatening to their future prospects or whatever. So we have to look at this now as, you know, I sometimes say certain stories diagnose the system, mm, right? Yes, you do. What happened to us at Evergreen diagnosed the system because the mainstream press couldn't figure out what to do with a story in which uh, you had people advocating for, uh, for blacks who were behaving in a bigoted way towards whites. It's not a natural story, so they either didn't report it or they reported it upside down, right? So that diagnosed the press. This story seems to diagnose a much larger phenomenon. It diagnoses the tech sector, it diagnoses the press, it diagnoses the scientific establishment, it diagnoses the governmental regulatory apparatus, all of those things. And we have to take a good long look at what happened because, oh my God, the cost could hardly be bigger. Yeah. And I guess it also diagnoses, you already mentioned um, Pierre Corey, who, you know, if you've been paying any attention to the uh, ivermectin story at all, you'll be familiar with his name. 
He's an MD who's a lung specialist who's treated a lot of COVID uh, patients. And um, he testified before the Senate in, I guess it was late last year, I think. Um, and that was taken down by... By YouTube. By YouTube. Senate testimony by a doctor who's treating COVID patients who's found that this drug, ivermectin, appears to be helping and asking for authorization to use it on label instead of off label. YouTube takes it down. Not only that, we're talking about not just a doctor, we're talking about a highly decorated doctor who had already improved our treatment of COVID 19 by discovering the use of corticosteroids against against the pathology, mm -hmm. okay? This was somebody who had already earned the right to say heterodox things many times over, yeah. right? And yet YouTube takes it down testimony. Even if he was a crank testifying to Congress, people have a right to see that. Yeah. But the fact is this wasn't a crank. If the Senate has decided to invite someone to testify... Where does YouTube get off? Where do they get off? Yeah. They took that down and yet... Dr. Fauci claiming that we didn't support gain-of-function research is somehow, you know, normal? Like, that's an obvious lie. It obviously involves defining things in some secret way that nobody's going to tell us, right? That, yeah. That's nonsense, Yeah. right? So we'll post this, but you can just briefly put up, uh, Zach, back in February of 2021, there was actually an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called YouTube Cancels the U.S. Senate. Uh, written by uh, Ron Johnson, who's a senator from Wisconsin. Um, so he details some of what we just were talking about. Ron Johnson? Well, apparently. From the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> like, Does I'm he not... work in a lumberyard there? I... <laughs> All right. We, sh we should have looked him up. It's just a but, question. Yeah, I, I get you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, I did want to correct I just one work thing. here. The reason we don't give alcohol to three-year-olds, there are a couple reasons. One is the medical reason that you point to, but the other is they don't know their limits. No, they really don't. No. They really don't. no. Oh. Okay. Can we talk about cicadas? Uh, yeah. Oh, you, oh, oh, no, no. You, you got something else? Yeah, I do yeah. have something yeah. else. And I, you know, I have some so trepidations about it. But um, here's the thing. Uh, I feel endangered because we have not been vaccinated because we have fears, as we have discussed uh, at length on this podcast. And my sense is that given what I have read, I'm not recommending this to anybody else. In fact, I'm not even going to recommend it to you, but you've seen what I've seen. You can make your own decision. Um, but given the apparent effectiveness of ivermectin at preventing COVID, given the fact that we are not vaccinated and therefore are more vulnerable to contracting it, um, I, I feel like, I mean, I should also point out that the dosages, which you can find on uh, the consortium that uh frontline covid 19 critical care alliance the flccc which we'll also link to right they have all of this evidence and they also have a protocol document about how you sh how you might use ivermectin uh if you haven't uh been confronted with covid if you think you've been exposed and the patient uh, treatment of patients mm -hmm. and so anyway the guidelines are fairly simple um and so anyway i feel like i should be on it because as much as no drug is perfectly safe I feel the danger of COVID in the world is much greater than the danger that comes from taking this stuff, which, uh, among other things, very cheap, but it's also, it doesn't have to be taken frequently. You take it two doses, 48 hours apart, and then I think it's weekly. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, I think cost benefit for me it makes sense to, to go it on the It sounds similar to a prophylactic dosage regime for most of the anti-malarial drugs. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, which you know, do, for those you wouldn't want to be on forever, but you know, we used to spend a long, 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 you know, many months at a time uh, in places where malaria was endemic, and we're on malaria prophylaxis. And yeah, yeah. that's just. So how many? That looks like a large dose. You're no, it's uh, not. Well, okay. I'm I'm splitting this because my dose and your dose are these are six milligram. Actually, I should. Uh... There is no telling. I want to use the same standard of safety that the AP uses. And the fact is, if I split one of these pills, anything could happen. It could explode into shards that could uh, destroy our. I mean, frankly. So, for those listening at home, he's got safety glasses on now. I have safety glasses on because. You're looking at the world through safety colored glasses. I am. All right. There you go. You decide if you want to take that. I'm taking. I'm, I have been thinking about this, but I'm not going to make a decision, at, a decision. at the first moment that you you confront me with it. Fair you know? enough. Um, that's so, and I and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would hope that no one would actually that you that you think on it. And you know, I've <clears throat> we've been sort of enmeshed in this for a while now. Does this hold stuff too? Can I put these? Yeah, in there? you can put those in um, there. I didn't. I've never seen this object before. Um, that has been in my family. I swear, this is at least. 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's probably brittle. That it probably plastic is. is really brittle. And full of um, BPA, unfortunately. Yeah. But. So what I was going to say was, okay, so you just you just did that. You just took your first prophylactic dose of, of ivermectin and you offered it to me as well. And I said, you know, I, I, I think I will and I'll report out next week if, if I did. But um, upon being confronted with it in real time with an audience, um, you know, I feel about about like I would if uh, if you had asked me to marry you in a very public place no matter how i felt it's like you that's not i'm I'm gonna go someplace private and think on this and make my decision where i know that i'm in full possession of my faculties and and, and yeah and come back for the record i did not do that no 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 nor would i have it's not my style no not at all yeah no um all right all right okay well there it is um cicadas yes cicadas, cicadas. right um so we just we cicadas are happening this year right everyone seems to know this is a brood x year what does that mean and what is going on with cicadas um people seem to want us to talk a little bit about cicadas and it turns out we went to grad school with two of the periodical cicada experts and they were experts the whole time the cicadas were periodical oh yeah they were not periodically expert no, no I, f- I found both john and totally. dave this is uh john cooley and dave marshall our, our friends from grad school um who uh yeah Working on periodical cicadas with consistent expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, so here, um, Zach, if you would show this this map. This is a current brood distribution for periodical cicadas in the mid-Atlantic area. So they do continue on um, off this map. But this is, a, this is a decent one that I found. And so, you know, brood X, that's just... That's because it's not describing species and it's actually only describing a temporal phenomenon, like when they emerge. Um, So it's not a subspecies either. Um, Brood is the word that is being used and they just got given um, Roman numerals and brood X. We happen to be in a brood X year. And so that sounds all exciting and wonderful, but I bet we don't hear nearly as much about, you know, brood XIX, you know, and such. Um, so what you see are these overlapping areas where, you know, broods will emerge at, um, at, at for, you know, really just a concentrated few weeks um, reliably 
um, in particular years. And if you look, boy, it's going to be pretty small for you guys, but um, Brood X, for instance, last emerged where it is uh, in 2004. It's emerging this year in 2021, and it's predicted to, and I pretty much guarantee you that it will, emerge again in 2038. So what is that period? So the, the word, the term periodical cicadas refers to a periodicity with which they emerge. So I can, can I fill in a couple of details here as to where these critters are so that people understand okay, what sure. emerge means? So what you have is one of the few creatures on Earth that can rival human beings for the length of its developmental period <laughs> for no particularly good reason. It's not like they have a lot to learn as kids. What they're doing is they're underground – um, attached to the roots of trees, getting nutrients. And then emerge means that their adult form, the final instar, comes into the world and is visible and noisy as hell and very annoying. And um, anyway, so that's the phenomenon in question. It is this emergence. Uh, have you said how many years apart? You no, that's what it. I was just about yeah, getting okay, to. Go yeah. for it. Um, so most of the broods have a periodicity between them, and you can do the math yourself by looking at this map of 17 years. Um, and some of them have a periodicity that is a time between emergence of 13 years. And then they're only out and about as adults for a few weeks. So they spend the vast majority of their lifetimes you know, underground, as, as, as Brett said, eating and, um, and not being findable. And then they emerge. And you know what's up? What's up with those numbers? It's 17 years or it's 13 years. It's, it's never 14 years. It's never 10 years. Uh, it's never 18 years. Uh, and, you know, again, if this were a classroom, we'd have asked that at the beginning of the class and, you know, ask people to think on it and come back to it. And I probably should have started Watch off their the... brains overheat. <laughs> right. Um, come back to it at the end. And um, because we're so focused on their stuff this year, uh, this year, this week, forgot to do it. Um, but, I mean, the answer, the answer appears to be um, that uh, 17 and 13, the thing that they have in common is that they are both prime. And that prime numbers are harder for other animals with shorter uh, emergence times or lifespans or developmental periods to time their, say, migrations or emergences too. Such that if you have something with like a, a two-year <clears throat> cycle and it's going to come out uh, every two years and some of those years it's going to be able to find cicadas, it might be able to begin to, to rely on that. But not if you've got a prime number in terms of the periodicity between emergencies emergencies, emergencies. Um, <laughs> well I, I think that's so that's the other thing like we're going to talk a little bit about for people who are in the middle of one of these periodical cicada emergencies it can feel like an emergency oh. right like it's I, i've actually so we've we've experienced cicadas in the neotropics um, which we'll talk about a little bit too different species not periodical cicadas they're just there all the time they're just there making a racket all the time, but it's not this kind of racket. Yeah. Right? Well, it's a pretty bad racket. It tends to be loud when it's sunny. But uh, So let's talk a little bit about why selection would have done this. I, yeah. I agree the prime number thing is the place to focus. But in some sense, many things uh, do something called predator satiation, yes. where basically if you imagine that there's something out there that eats another thing, the thing that gets eaten can partially win by not being available at all and then suddenly being available in such large numbers that the thing that eats them has gotten to very low uh, population density because there isn't a lot to eat. And then suddenly there are too many to eat. And so whatever it is that eats them does the eating and fills itself up. And most of the individuals are free from predation. So even within Brood X, 
if they just spread themselves out, if they emerged over the course of the spring and summer in the place where they're currently emerging, uh, you know, there would presumably be crows and such. There'd be lots of things that would come in and basically make a season out of it. Yeah. As opposed to it's going to be super high numbers for a very short amount of time. And the and it's this is not a group selectionist argument, right? This is a there's actually safety in numbers argument that yes, some of you will die, but more of you would have had you spread out your emergence. So whereas you can be assured that there will be predators on hand at a, you know a brood X emergence, um, fewer of you, the members of brood X cicada group, um, are going to end up succumbing to those predators if you all come out at once. So let's fill in the details of who the predators are likely to be here. They're almost certain to be birds, right? And birds are going to have a very easy time picking off cicadas because cicadas are... Dim. Oh, so dim. So they're dim. really dim. Mm-hmm. Um, they're dim, and they fly like they're dim. And oh yeah, they really, and they sound when they fly. They sound like they're dim. They sound like they're short circuiting. Yeah, they but do. Um, but in any case, so imagine if you were birds, and many birds are very smart. You oh, know, they are something uh, corvids or something like that. Crows. Uh, you could imagine a predator figuring out the pattern of emergences, right, and moving and predicting where the emergence was going to be and that then the population of predators could grow because it would be in the right place every year. So the prime numbers thwart that strategy because you have to nail it exactly. 17 years is a long period and 17 years has to be hit exactly. If it were 16 years, then something that checked every eight years or 16 years would nail it. Mm -hmm. If it's 17, you got to hit that year number on the dot. Yeah. So- that's right. In any case, I think what we're really looking for, and it may be that uh, the ultimate explanation here, I don't know, uh, John, David, do you want to write to us and tell us whether or not passenger pigeons have anything to do with this? Um, but it oh, may wow. be that passenger pigeons, <laughs> uh, you know, were predators of these things and that thwarting the passenger pigeons from knowing where to show up was, um, you know, a useful strategy. But I like that, like the brakes are off, like, okay, we can do a little arm waving adaptive hypothesizing here because it's cicadas and passenger pigeons we're talking it's about. Cicadas now. and we're passenger pigeons. We're not going to be quite so careful. And we yeah. know who holds our feet to the fire. So That's right. anyway. It's these guys. So actually just quickly show, this is an older paper, Zach, but this actually, they would have written this while we were in grad school with them. Um, this is Dave Marshall and John Cooley, Reproductive Character Displacement and Speciation in Periodical Cicadas with Description of a New Species, 13-Year Magicicado Neotredicum. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but they basically have septum decim, you know, 17 years and uh, tradecim, 13 years. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, the, the point was if you uh, emerge in great abundance and you do so on a prime number, a long prime number of years apart – than a predator who tries to figure out the pattern and record it in its migrational pattern is going to have a very confused um, problem. And actually, now that I think about it, the fact of 13 and 7, if you imagine some population that tries to migrate the pattern, right, uh, the way that the pattern will... A population of a predator or a cicadas, yeah. ...will Mm -hmm. clutter itself by virtue of the fact that some of these things are appearing every 13 years and some are appearing every 17 years. It means that you don't quickly get a repeating pattern of first you go here, then you go here. Right. Right? Yeah. Anyway, it's all fascinating. No, it's really good. Um, So... the uh, actually John Cooley is on this paper as well. I want to read just a few paragraphs from this 2020 paper uh, called, and Zach, you may show it. It's published in PLOS Pathogens. It's um, Behavioral Betrayal, How Select Fungal Parasites Enlist Living Insects to Do Their Bidding. 
It's a pretty great title, I think, you know, at least tickles me. Um, so I want to read um, just the first uh, couple paragraphs under what is active host transmission? Make that a little bit bigger. Uh, insects under the explicit control of parasitic fungi and tomopathogens are sometimes characterized by colorful terms, even colloquially categorized as zombies, a moniker that draws comparison to both fictitious and factual elements of contemporary life. I also feel like this is the best written scientific paper I've ever <laughs> read. So, you know, kudos to you, John, and the other authors on this. Though the effects of entomo entomopath see, I've never seen this word before, entomopathogenic fungi on their hosts are a far cry from behavior-modifying viruses such as rabies or the phantasmic world of brain-eating zombies that drag their way through our popular culture. Both rabies and select entomopathogenic fungi are nevertheless archetypal examples of pathogens that actively enlist their living hosts for successful transmission, a phenomenon referred to hereafter as active host transmission. And so you begin to see a connection maybe to what we were talking about earlier here. Um, victims of the rabies virus experience hydrophobia. They refuse to swallow, which allows the virus to collect around their mouths, and are much more likely to aggressively bite and interact with others. This unsettling rewiring of animal behavior supplants the interests of the victim in favor of the interests of the virus within. The phenomenon of parasite-induced active... Oh, sorry, what is it? Active host transmission in animal hosts has evolved numerous times across a variety of taxonomic groups. For example, Toxoplasma gondii, a protist parasite, suppresses the fear response of rodents and drives them to seek out feline foes to help complete the life cycle of their protist partner. Horsehair worms, nematomorpha, encourage their host crickets to drown themselves, which allows these parasites to complete their own life cycle in water. Likewise, certain entomopathogenic fungi, such as Massospora species, manipulate their host's sexual behaviors to increase their odds of transmission. Such engagements appear to serve the interests of the fungal pathogen over the interests of their hosts. Just uh, one more, two more sentences here. Manipulation of a host to focus on pathogen transmission is fascinating because it raises questions about the nature of autonomy and shines a light on the physical and behavioral manifestations of parasitism. Active host transmission is a form of biological puppetry in which the pathogen manipulates the behavior of its powerless host. Awesome. Awesome, right? Um, so not awesome that this is happening. No, no. But um, kind of amazing. Um, so I'm going to try to find my notes since, Zach, if you would give that back to me, that would be terrific. Thank you. It's um, going to be much easier now. Um, this reminds me um, of cordyceps. Uh, which some number of people will be familiar with because it's somehow gotten somewhat famous, famous yeah. of, of late. But cordyceps is a is a big genus. It's a very speciose genus of of uh, fungi, which is I, actually I think maybe not limited to the Neotropics. Maybe I'm not positive about that, but it's very widespread in the Neotropics, which is to say the so-called New World tropics. New World um, simply being a, a societal um, description that um, Europeans discovered it last um and actually humans discovered it last as well um yep. but it wasn't you know it wasn't it wasn't new to the people who were already living here the point that the europeans came but the neotropics the new world tropics have a ton of cordyceps and um you know the authors of this paper that i just read um a piece of distinguish between what's going on with um with active host uh, transmission and what's going on with cordyceps because they say that usually cordyceps, the spores aren't spread until the host is dead. Mm -hmm. But we've seen, we've actually seen cicadas in neotropical jungles that are clearly infected 
that yes. have you know that have like that have, have the back end of them something. are all fungal. And what they're doing is they're acting in very unusual ways. They're climbing. And and you know this there is a name for this called apparently summit disease where you like you you get infected with this thing and the thing basically sends instructions to your brain because you're a robot and you're like a robot insect not a human you're like I must climb must climb must climb and so they get to the top where um, once the spores are ready to spread they are more likely to spread because you're at the top of the canopy rather than in the understory where it's relatively still. Well, this actually solves a problem we were thinking about. Uh, so. I don't mean to short circuit the discussion. No, we don't have it. to, but um, we were thinking about what to do um, for a thumbnail for this. And that's I'm, not responsive at all. It's sort of responsive. We have from our last trip uh, to the Amazon a mm -hmm. very nice picture of an insect that has been completely defeated by cordyceps mm -hmm. and uh, is just basically a, a fungal ghost sitting on a leaf. Mm -hmm. um, and also somewhere we have pictures of these cicadas that have this uh, this um, growth off their it's back. Fungal and, growth. Yeah. So anyway, A, that's interesting that that's something one encounters with some regularity if you know what you're looking for. Um, and yeah, the idea of the manipulation of hosts is so powerful. Yeah. If you're going to encounter rabies, you might consider getting vaccinated for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least I mean, when we got vaccinated against rabies, it was very hard to um, to get and extraordinarily expensive. And um, yeah. Um, but yes, you really, really don't want rabies. No, it's not a good disease. I mean, in fact, I think there's one case in which somebody has survived it. Really? Um, I don't know there are any cases. I think believe there is one and it's horrifying and I probably should go back and figure out what it is that was done, which may not even be functional. The person may have just gotten lucky or been unusual in some physiological way. But um, yeah, it's usually entirely fatal if if it gets to the point that you've actually come down with the disease. It's obviously yeah. not fatal if you've been bitten and you immediately get treatment and the treatment isn't as horrible as it once, yeah. once was. Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, I bring up the fungal pathogens thing in part because we're just, we're talking about pathogens a lot today, but also uh, for those of you who live within the, within the boundaries of brood X right now and are being driven crazy by them, um, just be grateful that you're not infected by cordyceps. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, you can be grateful for that no matter where you live, but I agree. If I think you're so. Suffering through the electron, <laughs> the uh, cicadas. That yeah. Would be the right thought. Indeed. Um, well, we might finally be there after a fairly chaotic episode. I will. I, one thing I will say um, before we end is that um, we had we had my mom here this week, and she actually because she was flying out during our live stream, she actually just just drove off. So um, she will be. This is the first of our live streams that she has missed since we've been doing this. Yep. And so when you watch later, mom, um, we love you. We love you, Jesse. All right. Uh, so do we want to close out with, um, the usual, the usual. Yeah. So, um, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Uh, but for those of you who are watching on YouTube and are interested in asking a question or just hearing us answer a lot of questions, we will be back in 15 minutes to answer your super chat questions. Uh, we, we really actually enjoy them. Yeah. Um, and you know, we definitely get a little, little punch drunk and <laughs> goofy by the end because it's a long day, but, um, but we really do enjoy seeing the diversity of questions that come across the transom at us. Consider joining uh, my Patreon, uh, where we have the Dark Horse membership, which uh, gives you access to a private uh, two-hour Q&A every month. 
on the last Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific, and we just we leave that up too if you can't join us live. Um, Brett at his Patreon has uh, larger ticket conversations um, that happen on the first Saturday and Sunday of every month before our live streams um, in the mornings. Please, if you have any logistical questions, not questions for a Q&A, but any logistical questions you have, like how do I ask a question or, you know, when when is the private Q&A, um, go ahead and email darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. Um, and maybe that's it. Again, please subscribe, like, like subscribe, share, comment, go share. to the Clips channel. Yep. And uh, we'll be back in 15 minutes. In the meantime, eat good food, be good to the ones you love, and get outside. Be well, everyone.